my husband doesn't meet all my needs. And she actually wanted to divorce him. Well, I explained to her that only one person can meet all your needs. No one human being can meet all the needs of another human being. Only Jesus Christ can meet all our needs. I had a lady also in my church one time who actually was not really a Christian, but she was attending regularly with her husband. And they had a decent marriage, but it wasn't a marriage really in Christ. It's about as high as a common grace marriage could go. But one day she was irritated with her husband because he wasn't spending enough time with her, she said. And so she asked him to read something to her. And he said, well, what should I read? And she said, well, that sermon there from from your church. And there was a sermon we had published from Octavius Winslow. My times are in thy hands. So he read that sermon aloud to her. As he read, she was convicted of her sin. And by the end of the sermon, she was believing in Christ alone and repenting of her sin. And when he said amen at the end, she was, her face was bathed in tears. And she turned to her husband. She said, all our married life, you've been number one. But now you're number two. Because Jesus is number one. But I'll be a better wife to you when you're number two than when you're number one. Because I expected you to meet all my needs And now I know that only Christ can do that. What a valuable lesson. Well, tonight, I want to show you, post-communion, how only Jesus can and does and will meet all your needs. As prophet, as priest, and as king. As the office bearer of his dear children. I want to do that from this little vignette you find in verses 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So our theme tonight is our great office bearer who meets all our needs after communion. Our great office bearer who meets all our needs after communion. And we'll see that in three thoughts. He meets our needs as prophetical admonisher, as priestly intercessor, and as kingly commissioner. Prophetical admonisher, priestly intercessor, and kingly commissioner. Now it's amazing that Jesus speaks the words of our text, as you've heard, directly after he had just instituted the very first Lord's Supper. And had eaten with his disciples and had set a pattern for the church, the New Testament church, to the end of the world on how to commemorate this wonderful meal, this wonderful fellowship time we call the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper is, of course, a very special time for the church. It's a remembrance feast in which we remember Christ. It's a strengthening feast in which our faith is strengthened in Christ. It's a fellowship feast in which God's people 
commune together in Christ. It's a witnessing feast by which we declare that our only hope is outside of ourselves publicly in Christ. It's a love feast in which we love Him who first loved us. It's a covenantal feast in which we covenant ourselves back to Him who covenants Himself to us. It's a feast which in itself wonderfully meets the needs of the people of God. But Jesus hears the conversation of his disciples immediately after he institutes this supper. No doubt with great discouragement. They're arguing. Can you imagine that? Arguing which among themselves is going to be, verse 24 tells us, the greatest. The greatest. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go and suffer and die for you. And you're going to argue who is the greatest? The greatest among you is the one who is the servant of all. That's the lesson he gives them. But he also sees, because he's the all-knowing one, that Satan is trying to get his hoofs in between. Satan is trying to destroy his flock. And because Jesus is going to soon suffer and die, he's going into the three G's, boys and girls, Gethsemane and Gabbatha and Golgotha, where he's going to suffer in the garden and then in Pilate's judgment hall and then on the cross. Jesus sees that when the shepherd is smitten, as Isaiah says, the sheep shall be scattered. And he sees that Satan wants to get all of his disciples to destroy them, believing that if he can destroy them, if he can make them argue among themselves who is the greatest, he can destroy the movement of Christianity, the followers of Jesus Christ. And so the frightening truth here is that the disciples are not aware of Satan's presence. But the comforting truth is Jesus is. Jesus is. For he comes to meet all our needs. And he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan wants to have you to sift you as wheat. There was an old Baptist pastor in the 19th century who said it was as if Satan was saying, I've gotten Judas Iscariot. I'll have Peter next. I've picked off one of your lieutenants, Jesus. Now I'm going for the colonel. You see, Satan always wants to destroy from the top down in the church. He wants to destroy ministers, elders, deacons. He wants to destroy those who teach in the church in one capacity or another. Because he knows if he can destroy the leaders of the church, the sheep, will scatter. And so he comes as a warning prophet, an admonishing prophet. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan wants to have you. Now this is actually the third double name calling of Jesus in the book of Luke. You remember the others, I trust. All I have to do is mention the names, and you'll know. Martha, Martha. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And now Simon, Simon. These are all words of admonition. But on this occasion, Jesus adds the word behold, which means pay special attention. Take notice of what I'm saying. It's as if he's giving Simon Peter a triple warning. Wake up, Simon. Satan wants to have you, to destroy you. Simon, you think you're standing tall. You think you love me more than all the rest. You think me that you think you'll, you'll never forsake me. I'm saying to you, Simon, Satan wants to have you to destroy you. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the message to Simon Peter. Now, why, why was Satan so interested in Simon? Well, Simon, if you've ever noticed that, every time there's a list of all 12 or 11 apostles in the Gospels, Simon's name is always first. Simon was kind of a natural leader. He was the head of the pack, so to speak, the top of the pecking order. And he knew it. And he relished it. And you see, Jesus is saying, because of your past usefulness, because of your present position, because of your potential value, Satan wants to destroy you. You need to pray for Reverend Eshelman. Because Satan wants him as the leader of, of this flock. But you also need to pray for those five elders, those four deacons. Satan wants to have that. Actually, it's interesting here. Here's one case in the King James Version where the thee and the thous actually mean quite a bit. And um, it's not common, but you see, thee and thou is a singular form for you. You, in the King James Version, is always plural. That's the way people used to talk. There used to be a distinction in the English language between the singular and the plural second-person reference. So right now, if I say to you, how are you doing? You don't know if I'm talking to all of you or if I'm talking to just one of you. Because we've, we've simplified the language to our detriment. Now look at verse 31. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you. That's only plural. So he's talking directly to Simon as the leader, but he's actually taking up all the apostles. All of the apostles. That he may sift you, all of you, as wheat. But I have prayed for thee. Now he's talking directly to Simon. That thy faith fail not. And so it's not just your pastor. It's your elders, your deacons, your leaders. Actually, Satan wants to have all of you. All of you. Plural. He wants to have you, boys and girls. He doesn't want you to surrender your young lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be terrible in Satan's mind. That he would lose you for a lifetime. And you teenagers, as you face so many decisions in your life, and young adults, how critical it is that you are a true Christian. Because Satan wants to have you, to destroy you for a lifetime with the decisions you make. Your life partner 
your college education, if you, if you, if you proceed to college or university, it can make you or break you in many ways. Satan wants to guide you to, to make you make selfish decisions because he wants to destroy you. He wants to keep you as, as a subject of his kingdom and not to be born again, not to hate sin, not to love Jesus, not to be a disciple of his kingdom. Satan wants to have you, no matter who you are. He wants you as parents. If he can get you as parents, well, he's probably got your children as well. And grandparents, if you could lose your influence over your children and grandchildren, how he would rejoice if he could get you to stumble and to fall. And you see, Satan knows how to attack us. To attack us at our weakest points. Like a good fisherman, he baits his hook according to our appetites. And all of us have weaknesses. The Reformers and Puritans called them bosom sins, darling sins, besetting sins, favored sins. You pick the term you want. But we all have weaknesses. And your weakness will be different than my weakness. The sin that you need to battle against will be often different than your husbands or your your children's or your parents. And you see, Satan wants to approach you at your weakest points. He sees you. He's been observing you. He knows where you are likely to fall. Satan wants to have you. And if you don't think that's true, you see, you'll be all the more prone to fall. You need to watch against Satan. There's a wonderful book by a Puritan, Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. If you've ever read it, if you, never, if, you have never, if you have never read it, do read it. Do read it. It will make you alert to all the devices that Satan is trying to penetrate your life with. And you see, the reason Satan wants you and wants all of us is because he can no longer get at Christ. Christ is exalted at the right hand of the Father. Christ is almighty God. Christ is mightier than Satan. So Satan's goal is to destroy the flock of Christ. That's the way he can get back in his hatred against Jesus. So how are you doing in this battle with Satan? Is Satan real for you? Do you understand his devices? Do you pray often that Satan will not get at you? That you'll be able to resist all his temptations? And sometimes it's embarrassing. It's amazing how easily, how easily Satan can get the victory in us over the smallest of things. Now, I'm not a very good fisherman, but when our children were young, I thought I'd better, I'd better teach my son how to fish. So we were on vacation, and we had a fishing pole and a line, and I managed to put a worm on the end of the line, managed to cast out the line, and there were, there were all kinds of fishermen around us. Nobody was catching anything. And uh, I suddenly got something on my line. It, was, it seemed big, and I, and, I, and I reeled it in. And uh, all the other fishermen came around me. And I said, wow, that, that's a great fish that you caught. An unusual one in this river. Very special. 
what did you use for bait? And I said, uh, a worm. They said, you caught this fish with a measly little worm? I said, yeah. Don't you feel that way sometimes in your life that you, you, just with the smallest temptation, Satan hooks you and draws you in. Something you should know better. He wants to have you, you see. And you've got to be alert to him. Satan is the Judas among the angels. He's the great apostate. He's the angel who rebelled against what God entrusted to him on the first day of creation. So he's out to get you. He's out to get you. He desires, Jesus says, to have you. The Greek word there is the strongest possible word. The intensified form of the verb to ask, my dictionary says, or to pray. Some have translated it to ask excessively. It's like to sue in heaven's courts. I deserve Peter. He's a sinner like Judas. I want Peter. I want all the, I want all the apostles. It reminds you of the book of Job, doesn't it? Satan comes before God and says, I, I, I want Job. If I can just get Job to fall, I'll prove to you that people just serve you for benefits rather than for right motives. So Satan comes into your life and into my life to get us to fall, whether it's through easy things or, or hard things. And in his desire, Jesus says, he wants to sift you as wheat. As wheat. What does that mean? Well, in Bible times, farmers had servants who would sift wheat on their threshing floor. They had a long instrument called a sieve. It had a long handle. It had a wide scoop on the bottom. And they would scoop up from the threshing floor and they'd, a mixture of stuff. And they would shake it back and forth and the dust and dirt would fall to the ground. Then they'd shake it up and down and the straw and the chaff would come to the surface. And the wheat would stay in the bottom. And the goal of Satan, you see, is to choke the wheat by the straw and the chaff coming to the surface. And so to keep you from liberty in Christ, to keep you from being those kernels of wheat, as it were, that, 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 that ripe fruit of God in this world, he wants to suffocate you through his devices. He wants to sift you as wheat. Now, when a child of God gets sifted by Satan, it's, uh, it's not easy to always respond well. When Abraham was sifted, he said, Sarah is my sister. When Jacob was sifted, he said, all these things are against me. When Job was sifted, he first responded well, but two chapters later, he cursed the day he was born. You know what it's like to come into trials and not to respond well to God, don't you? It's Satan sifting you as wheat. He wants to destroy you, get the chaff and the straw to come to the surface, and you lose that kernel of communion with God, that real wheat of spiritual life, of sweet communion with God. So when we're in Satan's sieve, we often do no better. The hour of temptation reveals how weak, how proud, how selfish, how unbelieving, how capricious we still are, how easily we can backslide. 
In our flesh dwells no good thing. But you see, Jesus comes. And it's his loving admonition to warn us against these things. Boys and girls, listen to me a moment. When your mom and dad warn you about a sin, they don't do that because they hate you. They do that because they love you. When Jesus warns us, when Jesus warns us, it's because he loves us. Because out of love, he wants to keep us from self-destruction. And he wants to, if you're a believer, he wants to keep you as his child. He doesn't want Satan to have you. So, we're opposed by a very cunning and resourceful enemy who can outwork us and outwit us. And our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But praise be to God, we have a prophet who can meet all our needs, who warns us in his word, and who says, in my prophetical admonition and my prophetical teaching, I am able to keep you from falling into sin. Praise God for that. And yet, oh my, Satan is just so, so tricky. I read a story recently of a, of a watermelon farmer. And uh, he was harvesting watermelon, but every night some thieves came in and took a bunch of his watermelon. And so he thought he'd fix the problem. And he put a sign out in his watermelon patch, warning, one of these watermelons are poisoned. And that stopped the problem for two weeks. No more watermelons were were stolen. And one day the farmer came out, and he saw a sign next to the other sign that he had put up. And the sign said, warning, two watermelons are poisoned. The farmer didn't know what to do. Throw away the patch of watermelon. You know, Satan is like that. You think, you, you think you've gotten victory over him. You've put a stake up for the Lord. And suddenly he comes, maybe you push him out the front door, suddenly he comes in the back door with another temptation. He wants to have you. So we need more from Jesus if he's going to meet all our needs. We need more from Jesus than his being a prophetical teacher and admonisher. We need him also to be a priestly intercessor. And praise be to God. Praise be to God. Now our text doesn't end at the end of verse 31. Verse 32 says, But I have prayed for thee, I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. These words, I hope, are like music in your ears. They're wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Jesus Christ is not only our prophet to teach and admonish us, he's also our priest to sacrifice for us, to give his entire life for us, and then to go to his Father and intercede for us. He ever lives, Hebrews 7.25, to intercede for us moment by moment, every single believer. This is the beauty of Christ's intercession. He's got the infinite capacity to intercede for all of the millions of believers around the globe at the same time, but also to remember every single believer as if each one were his only child. 
I want you to think about the comfort this gives to a child of God. Maybe you've never thought about it. If you're a believer, every single second, 24-7, 365, Jesus is interceding for you. Exactly how, we don't know. That's okay. We don't need to know. He's remembering you. Interceding. Spreading his blood in heaven's courts, as it were. On behalf of your behalf, before his Father. Praying for you that your faith fail not. So that means no matter what trial you're going through. The young woman who spoke about having colon cancer. He's interceding for you right now. All the other needs you, you, you mentioned for prayer. He's interceding for you right now. And even if you don't have any special burdens, there's always the danger that you backslide. But he's interceding for you right now. You see, that's the amazing thing. He meets all our needs as our intercessor so that we are in his hands. And no man shall pluck you out of my hands. Jesus says, his father says, everything's going to be okay in the hands of the intercessory high priest. So this is remarkable. We have one who's greater than Satan. Satan's a fallen angel. Jesus is the almighty God. And his prayers are always effectual. He says, Father, I know that thou heareth me always. Always. Jesus has no unanswered prayers with his Father. And notice what he says. He says, I myself, I myself have prayed for thee. It's in the emphatic tense in the Greek. It means Satan is putting in a claim for you in heaven's courts, but I'm putting in a counterclaim, and my counterclaim is stronger, not only because I'm almighty God, but I have earned the right that Peter would not stumble permanently, that his faith would not fail, because I have suffered, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die for Simon Peter. I will out-desire, I will out-demand, I will out-praise Satan in praying for the preservation of Peter and all my disciples, then and now. Father, keep them from the evil one. Jesus prays in John 17. And so, dear believer, your divine advocate, the Son of God, the ever-blessed Emmanuel, pleads for you on stronger grounds and with stronger claims than even Satan himself does. I, myself, have prayed for you that your faith, thy faith, individually, one by one, will not fail. So what does that mean practically? Well, Jesus is a servant of the Father. Isaiah has four servant songs. Jesus is, as it were, the one who comes and scoops up from the threshing floor. And he's greater than Satan. And so as Satan uses his devices to get the dust and dirt to fall, And to get the straw and chaff come to the surface, Jesus reaches in his hand like a farmhand did and takes away the straw and blows away the chaff so that all that is left is wheat. So that all of Satan's devices are overruled by Jesus. Jesus even uses Satan's devices to bring his people 
out into the good. He gives grace so that good flows out of evil. That maturation flows out of trial. That joy comes in the morning following the nights of affliction. You see, John Calvin put it this way. When I first read it, I thought it was heresy. But he says, Satan can be a good physician for us because his efforts to destroy us are overruled by Christ. God even used Satan's devices to mature us. To know our own weakness. To know our dependency on him. This is, this is a gift of God. That Jesus is in control. That all power is given to him in heaven and in earth. All authority is given. He runs every detail of your life. And every single thing, Romans 8.28, shall work together for your good. Those things that you think cannot possibly work together for good, they do. Why? Because there's a high priest in heaven who earned the right to make it so and who prays that it will be so and whose prayers never fall to the ground unanswered. Now exactly what is it that Jesus prays? Ah, this is very interesting. That thy faith fail not. That's it. He doesn't pray that Peter's self-righteousness won't fail that his uh, thinking of his superior love over the others won't fail. He doesn't pray that all of Peter's selfish behavior won't fail. He says there's just one thing, one thing that I pray won't fail. Peter's faith. Peter's faith. Why faith? Because faith has only one object, which is Jesus. Matthew Henry said, of all graces, Christ is most pleased with faith because faith is most pleased with Christ. And you see, what happens is this, that when your faith is fixed on Christ, you see, you will walk with him and you will be faithful when your faith is fixed on Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to work everything out. Even Peter's lamentable fall. There was a lamentable fall. I'm going to work that out to lead him to come back to me to put all his faith in me. And so it will work together for good. And I will wash his sin away. I pray that your faith won't fail. So other things may fail. Other things will fail. That's okay. But Father, don't let Peter's faith fail. Now the word fail there in Greek is eklipo, and it means to come to an end or to be eclipsed. From, we get the word eclipse from it, like, a, like the sun being eclipsed or the moon being eclipsed. Don't let, don't let that faith be, be wiped out. Don't, don't let, keep that faith visible, Lord. Don't let it be wiped out without a trace. Don't let it be overturned and die. Even though it becomes weak, revive it, O oh God. Don't let Peter's faith die. Now, I want to ask you a question. When has your faith been exercised the most? When have you been closest to the Lord? 
When have you lived most nearly and dearly to and with Jesus Christ? I think most of you would answer, wouldn't you? In the times of the greatest trials of my life. God gives special grace in times of special need. Satan is utterly a defeated foe. Though he has devices against which we must be warned, Christ gets the victory. And he'll use even the devices of Satan to overturn them in order to grow our faith and mature us in Christ. Satan can never destroy that noble grace we call faith by which we are united to Christ. He cannot touch that faith which is the bond of union by which we're bonded to Christ who dwells in our hearts. He cannot destroy the faith that works by love, that produces hope, and that is the heart of true godliness. That faith cleaves and clings to the Lord. That faith cannot but love God. That faith hangs upon Christ and God's promises in Him. That faith cannot be destroyed by Satan. Because Jesus meets all our needs as the faithful intercessory high priest who prays that our faith fails not. Heidelberg Catechism says so beautifully, we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment. But that weakness forces us, you see, to cast ourselves by faith upon our intercessory high priest to preserve us in the midst of the sea when we feel like we're drowning. I pray for thee that thy faith will not fail. And so Jesus Christ reaches into the sifting process and he overturns Satan's devices by pulling away the straw, blowing away the chaff, and the golden wheat abides. So Peter won't be like Judas Iscariot because the seed of faith is in him. The waters of affliction may threaten to drown you, but remember, your faith has not been fully eclipsed. God will strengthen it. God will revive it. God will bring you back. He will not lose one of his own. There will be no empty chairs in heaven. He promises in Amos 9 verse 9 that despite our being sifted, yet shall not the smallest grain fall upon the earth. Not one kernel of wheat shall perish in the dust and the dirt beneath. He'll keep every one of his saints. Father, here am I and all those whom thou has given me. But now there's one more thing that Jesus does. He's not only our prophet to admonish and teach us, our priest to sacrifice for us, intercede for us, but he's also our king who commissions us. Peter repented. Oh yes, Peter returned to Christ and believed in him as the only one who would preserve him in the end. Satan put in a claim, but Christ's counterclaim prevailed. And now Christ gives Peter a kingly commission. He says, when thou art converted, or better translated perhaps, when thou art repentant, strengthen thy brethren. This is amazing. He doesn't say if. He doesn't say I'm a helpless savior. Peter, standing beside you and I can't change your heart. It's up to you to decide for me to serve me again. No, he says, Peter, you're going to fall. But I'm going to revive you when thou art repentant. 
I will bring you to repentance. It's not an if matter. It's a when. I will do it at my time. You see, where there's the word of a king, there's authority and power. This is Jesus' power. He will bring you. If you stumble into sin, he will bring you to repentance if you're a true believer. And then you're called to go out and strengthen your brethren. And how did Jesus bring Peter to repentance? It's amazing. You know the story, boys and girls. Just one look. Peter's in the hall of Caiaphas. He's washing his hands. He's denying he ever knows Jesus. And what happens? Jesus is walking through. He looks over. He sees Peter. He just gives him one look. As if to say with his face, Is it really true, Peter? You don't know me? You don't know me? It's like a sword going through Peter's heart. He goes out and he weeps bitterly. 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 In fact, tradition says that every time he heard a cock crow for the rest of his life, he'd get tears in his eyes over denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the bitterness of sin. And yet, it made him fall all the more in love with Jesus Christ. When thou art repentant. God can do it with one word. One word from his word. He can do it with one look. I have a brother with 13 children. And my sister-in-law. Oh, she was tough. And those kids were young. But she was loving. She strong discipline, strong love. And the looks in her eyes. Whoa. They conveyed a message of love, but also of discipline. I was sitting in their living room one day. The living room and the kitchen were kind of an open area. It was about 5 o'clock. We're going to have supper very soon. And she had her back to the kitchen. There was a nice bowl of cookies on the kitchen table. And an 8-year-old boy walked in quietly. Didn't see me sitting in the living room. Has his eye on his mother. He knows he's doing wrong. He comes close to the cookie bowl. He's reaching out for a cookie. And suddenly, you know, boys and girls, that mothers have eyes in the back of their head. You know that? And she turns around. And she just looks at him. Just. His hand is like six inches away from the bowl. He pulls his hand back slowly, gets off the chair, walks away. Neither one ever said a word to each other. But you see, Jesus' look was different. It wasn't just a look of, don't you dare. It was a look of, really, Peter? You don't know me? It was a look of love that broke Peter's heart. You see, when you really love someone and you sin against them, it hurts so bad. It hurts so bad. Boys and girls, if you sin against your mom, that will hurt you a lot worse than if you sin against somebody you don't care about. And when we sin against God, and God brings us to repentance, and we love Him again fervently, oh, then we want to live for Him. And we want to receive His commission. We want to go out and proclaim His name. And that's exactly, you see, the kingly commission 
that Jesus gives to Peter. He's saying, Peter, I'm going to break you with repentance so that you as a broken vessel can now go out and feed my sheep so that I can commission you to feed the little sheep. Lovest thou me more than these? To feed the more, somewhat more mature sheep. Do you really love me? And then, are you sure that you love me? Even as a friend, the third question, for the more mature sheep, what Peter is saying, what Jesus is saying to Peter is, Peter, I really couldn't use you very much when you were standing high above all the rest. You, you'd break my little sheep. You'd have no compassion on them. You see, God doesn't use a man greatly normally until he's broken him deeply. And Peter had to be broken to be more useful. To have a commission to really proclaim the name of Christ and Christ alone to all those who would hear the gospel under his ministry. So who is it that stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches that sermon under which 3,000 are converted? Simon Peter. Who is it that leads the New Testament church throughout the book of Acts together with Paul? Simon Peter. Yes, he stumbled once or twice more. But Simon Peter was strengthening his brethren. Who is it that wrote those two beautiful epistles near the end of the Bible? Of which the very first one, once he gets through the greeting, says, We are kept by the power of faith, the power of faith unto salvation. Simon Peter. Who is it in his epistles who said, Satan goes around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Simon Peter. What is he doing? Strengthening the brethren. May I ask you tonight, if you're a Christian, what are you doing? Are you, are you strengthening the brethren with your walk of life, with your conversation? Are you being a prophet, a priest, and a king unto your prophet, priest, and king who meets all your needs? You see, that's the proper response to Jesus as prophet, priest, and king who meets all our needs. Then we want to go out and be prophets, priests, and kings with a small p and a small k to serve him. To be commissioned with our thoughts, our words, our actions. To speak well of him wherever we go. Heidelberg Catechism says this so beautifully. So beautifully. In question 32... It's talking about the name of Jesus, that he's the Christ, the prophet, the priest, the king. And then it it interrupts this chain of thought about talking about the names of Christ. And it says, but why are you called a Christian? Which is literally a little Christ or someone like Christ. Because I am a member of Christ by faith, is the answer. Notice the word faith. By faith, and thus am partaker of his anointing. That soul, so here's what it means to be anointed that I may confess his name, that's my prophetical office, and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him. That's my priestly commission. And that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures. That's my kingly commission. You see, when Jesus meets all our needs, he makes us prophets, priests, and kings which we lost in paradise. We were prophets, priests, and kings in the first Adam. We destroyed it. We destroyed the image of God in this essential sense. And now he regenerates us and he makes us prophets, priests, and kings again who go out and live evangelistic lives 
to follow his commission of strengthening our brethren, our sisters in Christ. So, post-communion, will you go out and strengthen your brethren? Will you live out of this prophetical admonisher, this priestly intercessor, this kingly commissioner, and will you surrender your life to him and confess his name and be living sacrifices of thankfulness? And will you fight against sin and Satan in this life so that afterwards you can reign with him forever, with Christ forever in glory? Defy Satan. Defy Satan with the word of God. Flee every day to Christ by faith. He's your teaching prophet, your interceding priest, your guiding king. He's your hope. He's your stronghold. He's everything you need. He can meet every need. But for those of you who can't say these things, who can't say that Christ is your first love, your Savior, your Lord, your treasure, your all and in all, the one who meets all your needs, because you really don't know him savingly, I say to you in closing tonight, you, by the grace of God, can still defy Satan. How, you say? Well, I want to close with this illustration. There was once a a world-famous chess champion. He was traveling throughout Europe. And he came to a museum, a European museum with lots of beautiful oil paintings. And he found an oil painting of, of a game of chess, of two players. One was dressed like Satan with horns, and the other was a young man who was biting his nails. And the title beneath the painting said, Checkmate. And Satan was reaching in his hand, taking his queen, moving it into a position that it was seen was going to checkmate the young man. And the game would be over. And maybe you fear, maybe you fear that God will never save you, that you'll be checkmated by Satan and be destroyed. But the young man, the chess player, looked at the painting for a long time, studied every possible move, and suddenly he he cried out to the young man in the painting, wait a minute, there's a move you can make, and you can checkmate Satan. But of course, he realized it was foolish because the young man in the painting couldn't hear him. But you can hear me tonight, now, and I say to you, there's a move you can make that can checkmate Satan. And that is to repent of your sins. Confess who you are before God. And cast yourself by the grace of God entirely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. For your total salvation, not 90%, not 99%, 100% in Christ. And you, by the grace of God, will checkmate Satan. Because this Savior who says... Everyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast away. He's almighty to save you from every device of Satan. He's your prophet, your priest, and your king. If you put your trust in him, you will never be put to shame. Amen. Let's pray.